Talking Theater with Sir Holworth Felix Smooth, the only podcast on earth about the theater. Education is the most powerful weapon you can use to change the world. So said Nelson Mandela. But he never attended an early morning clowning workshop or a 45-minute Meisner mindfulness and meditation lecture from the drama school of befuddlement and bollocks. He never sat in the hot seat answering questions from the point of view of a tree, ran around the room as water and then fire and then air, or slept with his course leader Gary because of his impressive list of credits and contacts. Nelson would do well to see the so-called education in the hallowed halls of the UK's best and worst drama schools, Let him see them, and then we can talk. Because if you ask me, from his rather trite titbit, he knows fuck all. Also, clearly, the most powerful weapon you could use to change the world would be a nuclear bomb. Fire that into the Earth's core, and see what sort of change happens then, you idiot. Good day. My name is Holworth Felix Smooth, and I'm an actor who needs no introduction. However, according to the good people of the podcasting world, we're under time this week, so let me start with an unnecessarily detailed introduction and say that, as well as being the host of this unbelievably accomplished podcast, Talking Theatre, the only podcast on earth about the theatre, you might like to also know that time 5'9", with a slim build, I wear a size 8 brogue and 9 tennis shoe. I find the extra room helps with a cross-court slice. And I'm a paid-up bab, or born-again Buddhist. In terms of my hobbies, I play tennis, <laughs> and I enjoy attending functions where I wear my brogues. Now, I have three children, Godba, Florence, and Wexley, who I adore, and who adore me no matter what they protest. <laughs> they love me. I know they do. <laughs> Definitely. I live in a large and impressive detached house with windows and a roof uh, in a cul-de-sac which, for the benefit of the descomisados out there, is a street-top passage closed at one end. Something you won't be familiar with, I'm sure. Council estates tend to be designed with lots of exits and entrances in order to allow the police, ambulance, fire and social services regular and easy access, and thank God they do. I have a pet iguana, as you may remember from episode 3, Keith, who is just one of a plethora of animals I have at my home in what is affectionately known by my family and friends and nosy neighbours as the Smooth Menagerie. (laughs) We've 15 bull toads, 3 woodland badgers, 25 water rats, 2 bengal ferrets, a shard of horse beetles, a hairy goat and 43 albino red-billed horn monkeys, all of whom enjoy a rich diet of roast dinner on a Sunday, pig feed and Sainsbury's reduced meat packets Monday through Friday, and Saturday is a fast day. In my professional life, I've been compared to many of the greats, by the greats, because I am great. And that sounds a touch arrogant, I know, but arrogance would suggest a degree of delusion to the former statement, which in this instance obviously doesn't apply. I'm so great. If your mind is still unsure now, uh, go directly to the BBC iPlayer and watch any episode of EastEnders. Oh, 
You won't find me in there, and rightly so. It's a dreadful business. I say, judge me not by what I have done, but what I have refused to do. Or would refuse to do, should they ever ask me. But there, there, there is something to be said for mucking in and helping to improve a show. That's also true. So, so as I say, EastEnders producers, if you are listening, I'd love to be in your little show. What else to tell you? Well, uh, I have a lovely shock of white hair that I treat regularly with wash and go, and I'm a practising homosexual. In fact, I'm really rather good at it. So that's me. <laughs> uh, as Fern Britton once slurred to me through her noshing of a pork pie, You know what you are, Holworth. You're like a mature Philip Schofield. Kiss me. I like Phil. I don't care what anybody who works on this morning says about him. And I suppose, in many ways, Sambuca and Pigfield Fern was right. We are similar. Although when I played Joseph in the 1989 revival of Andrew Weber's musical Bible Romp, I had the good graces to sing it in tune. There is that difference. <laughs> Bless him. I text Philip in the interval of his opening night and pleaded with him to at least make the decision to either speak it all or shout it all, but to please stop modulating between the two, as it was causing all the primary school children to cry and vomit. I said to him, well, actually, I, I shouted it at him from the stalls, It's not hard, Philip, dear boy. There's only one tune in the whole bloody show. Perhaps Schofield should have gone to a drama school and actually trained. Some might even argue that such a drastic measure may still be necessary when they see him fumbling through the auto-cue or segueing to the wrong camera feed. <laughs> Indeed, he's prone to giving particularly bad performances when appearing to be interested in charity causes or challenging despised right-wing government ministers. Philly, we all know you like and support them, old fish. At least attempt a modicum of incredulity. Well, lucky for Phil and you little bubbles at home, we'll be getting into the philosophical arguments and more in today's episode, which is all about just that. Drama schooling. So, with only a minute to use up to get the right timing, I shall bring this introduction to a close by just saying, with great enthusiasm and boundless optimism that we should get on with the show. That's the time. Brilliant. When I called Simon Charmer to get the lowdown, as the kids say, on the origins of drama school, I got a rather large and audible sigh, and the somewhat curt reply of, God, I wish I'd never bloody gone into history, and I was shocked, to say the least. Apparently, Sharma is the go-to historian for celebrities, and although in the subject he's clearly a world leader, and has made a pretty penny out of it too, the incessant calls he receives night and daily about Tudor this, or Russian Revolution, or Crimean War that, have seriously made him consider either moving to Bangkok, Thailand, or throwing himself off the Tyne Bridge. He was obviously deeply depressed and sounded like he needed a friendly ear, Unfortunately, I didn't have the time for that, so I warned him that I was on a deadline and I'd be forced to put the phone down and call David Starkey if he didn't give me a snappy rundown of how drama schools began. I've had Starkey on speed dial since 1998 when he asked me to be his sponsor. He's not called in a long time, in fact, so one can only assume he's either kicked the habit for good or is, as he would say, 
getting completely blotto-wazzard, and riding high with his bitches and his hoes, and his brothers, who knows. God, I hope it's the first. Anyway, Sharma managed to push his self-indulgent to one side, stop his incessant crying, and give me the goods. Drama schools, he said, can be traced back as far as ancient Egypt, to the times of Cleopatra, Ptolemy, and the popular dysentery destination Holiday Park Sharm el-Sheikh, which, at that time, was only a few hundred thousand years from being built. Amazing. We know of these early schools, Sharma insists, because during excavations of one of the pyramids, one of the big ones, he thinks, the ruins of a mirrored wall was discovered. It was thought that perhaps the Egyptian overlords of the time were just a little bit pervy, perhaps mirroring a wall in the bedroom to get a good look at themselves pumping away. Uh, this theory seemed to hold up when the discovery of a large wooden beam across the mirror suggested something of the Fifty Shades about it all, and Sharma admits even he became an intoxicated with the idea of Egyptians tying themselves to the balustrade and watching themselves be horsewhipped by gold-panted buffmen. It wasn't until they dusted away some more of the sand and shit that they discovered pairs of sandals all lined up along the opposite side of the excavation. Whilst Sharma leapt to additional theories and evidence of an ancient sadomasochist foot fetish room, it was other, smarter, and less repressed historians who pieced it all together as that of an ancient rehearsal room in an ancient drama school. Archaeologists were stunned to make such a discovery, but were elated they now finally had evidence for what were once just theories. Now they could hold their heads up and say confidently, without ridicule, that indeed the earliest civilizations did take their footwear off to play stuck in the mud and or zip-zap boing. It was the Renaissance period which saw the next vital shift in drama school development, though, most notably in the attendees. In the Egyptian period, it had been slaves who would attend the early drama schools, taking time and their short break from torture to lightly do some hot-seating and forum theatre. But in the Elizabethan period, it was young people who would attend once they had done all their house chores, toiled the fields, and slept with a noble lord of the village. Twice. Once they had, they might treat themselves with a sojourn to a drama school, or l'école sur le dessus, as those at court would call it, where the likes of Shakespeare, Marlowe, Johnson, and Johnson would likely be giving workshops on their plays. In fact, it's very likely in Shakespeare's case. One can tell from his over-the-top language and outlandish narratives that he's a bit of a big head. I'm sure he relished the opportunity to have all the eligible girls and boys of England in to do a big workshop of iambic pentameter. <laughs> Lining them all up and walking up and down the line, clapping and spitting da dum ba da dum ba da dum ba da dum ba da dum until they were all blue in the face. Study changed with time, though, and as the Georgians were very partial to a fop, it's in this period we find drama schools becoming what one might call a little bit puffy. Floor work is replaced with wig studies, and you'd be more likely to see a student spend an afternoon making himself up to look an absolute tart, rather than in three hours of stage combat and swordry. In the Victorian age, unsurprisingly, drama schools were banned, as was all happy endeavours, and the buildings were repurposed as madhouses, asylums, and other such premises where difficult women could be sent to be taught a lesson. It wasn't until 1945, when Berlin finally fell, that the old drama schools were cleared of the mad and the bad, given a lick of paint, and opened again, something which was done by royal decree. In his final speech for the Commons, a tired and drunk Churchill signed off with his now-forgotten line, 
for the good of the Western democracies, we must now open the drama schools again. And so they did. What follows in the modern period is, in Chalmers words, a series of decades more committed to the narcissistic cause of self-aggrandizement than to any actual art, before we hit a postmodern 21st century where drama schools have essentially become little Instagram factors, churning out zealist actors whose CVs include how many followers they have and what party boats they've sailed on. But more on that later. I think you'll agree. It's a tawdry little history, and I think it sets the scene for what I consider to be certainly an unnecessary and costly and largely futile path any budding actor may take. I must take this opportunity to thank Sharma for his time all the same. We were admittedly cut short when I put the phone down, but had he kept my interest and I'd stayed on, I'm sure I'd have thanked him politely to his ear and reminded him that he should really cheer himself up because the alternative he suggested is much scarier. You really don't want to move to Thailand, Sir Simon. The crime rates are through the roof. You're listening to Talking Theatre, the only podcast on Earth about the theatre. Next up, we'll be diving headfirst in some pretty exciting explorations regarding drama schools today, including what goes on behind the doors, under the ceilings, and on the floors of these alternative institutions. But first, a word from this week's sponsors. Um, stupid, why is there a duck in the toilet? How you doing? Um, hello? I don't think so. God, I've missed you guys. That's right. Your favorite six boomers are back. Netflix has recommissioned a new 13-episode series of the hit 90s classic, Mates. Join all your favorite characters, like self-loathing. Um, I don't know how I got here, but I love everyone and I keep getting hurt. Highly strung. Um, self-loathing? You can't touch that. I'm attractive. Sarcastic. Um, has anyone ever realized anything like... <laughs> ever? Needy. Sarcastic. You're not giving me enough attention. And stupid and female stupid. Um, this cocktail tastes like bleach. Um, <laughs> I think it is bleach. <laughs> Join them for all of the nostalgic, casual homophobia and racism you can bear. Mates is back for good. And there's nothing you can do about it. Hey, uh, female stupid, it's not bleach, it's battery acid. Mates, coming this fall. Getflix's mates are proud sponsors of Talking Theater, the only podcast on earth about the theater. It's hard to describe the ethos of the drama school of today, but it's probably best to try before we get into the gritty nitty of its inner workings, or its ins and giblets, as I prefer to call it. They're all different and horrid in their own unique ways, with reputations that precede them, 
Rose Bruford is known for charging students to use the door handles in the school, for example, and lined theatre arts are rumoured to break the feet of every dancer at the commencement of each term, a practice they call fixing. Meantime, if you cross the river, Central School of Speech and Drama apparently makes students speak in a gibberish language called Schamelfrischelflagenpop for the first year, and on Friday mornings the students of Manchester Metropolitan must dance naked around a fire covered in mud and sludge and porridge. These rituals make for frightening reading, and it's hardly something students are aware of as they consider the route into our industry. You're unlikely to open the prospectus of North London Drama School Mountview Academy, for instance, and find them admitting to their short course in chicken garrotting on stage, but we all know it's a mandatory paper for second-year students on the MA screen stage acting course. Even the top school in the country suffers similar barbarous rumours, Francois Cancafal, the highly regarded stage manager, told me that the Rada was famous for cutting corners. Apparently it was built on an old prison cesspit, which is why it always stank of faeces, and why students affectionately referred to it as the Royal Academy of Dreadful Farts. I've always thought the putrid smell that wafts along its corridors were that of entitlement and nepotism, but then apparently it really is turds. As I said to Cancafal over a plate of duck pancakes, it's perfectly plausible, it's all of the above, Frankie. And we both threw our heads back and laughed knowingly at how posh and stupid those who attend the most famous drama school are. There is one word that comes to mind when thinking of the likes of Raja and Lambda and Lippers and Ram and PPA and the rest of them, and that word is acronym. Just when you thought these schools couldn't be more money-grabbing, you realise they're even trying to save money on the printing by abbreviating every which way but loose. Or as they'd put it, E-W-W-B-L. Ooble. Perhaps it would be pertinent of me at this juncture to declare a conflict of interest. I know some of the murmurings on the Twitter and the Faces book, in anticipation of this episode, have suggested the only reason I dislike drama schools is because I auditioned for so many and didn't get into any. Well, I can tell you now, with confidence, that's complete bollocks. And if I get my hands on at Holworth is a liar and he knows it 2020, or at Talking Theatre's Lies 666, I'll wring their bloody necks like those poor chickens at Mountview. To say I didn't attend the rod is to ignore the two-week course I did there in August of 1964. The course entitled Audition Technique and Achieving a Place at the Rada was geared towards those who were considering applying, and I must confess, yes, I hold my hands up, that a young Holworth did set his sights on the best institution, their words, not mine, I think it's pants, and I took the course. Now, it's true that upon completion and after several auditions I didn't get onto the beer acting course, but it's like I said to the young girl who phoned me to inform me. I didn't want it anyway. I mean, I remember the exchange. Well, as I recall, she apologised again, to which I said, you wanted it, I didn't want it. Perplexed, she insisted she was merely a receptionist and that I didn't need to be rude, and I replied again as you might expect with, I'm not rude, you're the rude one, you want to be on the course and you're the rude one, rudy lady and after ten minutes more of back and forth, she finally slammed the phone down. You heard right. Slammed. Now, I don't recall, but I'm sure in that moment I thought to myself, Holworth, Holworth Felix to smooth. Do you really want to go to a place where the receptionists slam telephones down in such a dismissive and careless fashion? Don't they realise at the Rada that there are people in Africa who don't have phones? 
No, I knew it wasn't the place for me. And besides that, I realised that attending the two-week course meant that technically I could put it on my CV anyway, and nobody was going to stop me. Except the RSC, who told me that if I didn't take it out of my programme bio, I'd be dismissed without pay. And that was fine. So, yes, it's true. I didn't go to drama school, and it's well documented that I think anyone who does go is a complete idiot with too much money on their hands and a flagrant willingness to waste time when they could just as well be crawling around their living room pretending to be a squirrel, and that wouldn't cost £12,000 a year. Now, of course, we fudded duddies might seem old-fashioned because we actually believed in getting a job, paying our taxes, and achieving something in our early twenties rather than, I don't know, asking about pretending physical theatre is a worthwhile form. <laughs> I mean, come on, make me laugh. <laughs> they really, really make me laugh. <laughs> For those who still wish to know what it's like, though, honestly, complete idiots, I have done the unthinkable and infiltrated a very well-known drama school for a day in order to bring you some of the horrors of which I warn. I called a school not two weeks ago, it was three, and requested a day visit saying very shrewdly, it must be said, that I was a German nun by the name of Sister Bratwurst, who was working for the government as an inspector of religious freedom. I would need access to a typical class from the start of the day to the end, as well as beer and sausage, at any time I requested. To my surprise, they accepted, and after popping round to my friend Lenny to get his nun outfit from Halloween 2016, I began a transformation into the Bratwurst, and readied myself for the task ahead. What you are about to hear is quite horrid, I warn you. Those with a weak gag reflex might want to get the sink bowl at the ready. Side note. My lawyers inform me that in order to present this evidence without fear of being sued, I must present it in its entirety and read it verbatim, exactly as I wrote it on the day and the night. I mean, I would prefer to edit towards the end for reasons that will become apparent, but the law is the law, so instead I simply urge you to take note of the drama school's dark doings and, where necessary, ignore, let us say, my indiscretions. 4am. Wake up time. This involved the students waking up and immediately updating all of their social media with a new selfie and a caption which said what they were doing, how much they were looking forward to it, and how lucky they were to be there. Three students broke their necks just craning their heads to the side to get the right angle for the selfie. An ambulance was called but all three were pronounced dead at the scene. The warden's assistant told me this was very typical and that it was fine because they'd simply replace them with those on the waiting list by breakfast. I gave the sign of the cross, dipped with reverence, and floated onward. 4.15 to 4.30 a.m. Students get up and report at the end of their bunks in their dorms for morning breathing exercises, including breathing out and in, followed by standing meditation, which involves controlled breathing and lengthy counting. Following this was maternal quick breaths. Then lastly, 15 minutes of no breathing at all. Already I'm finding the task at hand overwhelming, and so sink one of the ten alcoholic miniatures I've had Lenny sew into the lining of the cassock to calm my nerves. 4.30 to 5am. Strip and shower time. The students strip down to the nuddy waddies and stand in tiled corners where they are washed by the matron with a large fire hose. Each student is gifted one soap bar and is told not to share. Any student caught sharing must freeze in tableau for the remainder of the day, depicting an extremely sorry person begging for forgiveness. They call it the submissive, 
and excessive blinking is counted as a misdemeanor. 5 to 6 a.m. Breakfast. Students begin the day with a meal of one multivitamin, water, and a half portion of the fruit of the day. Today is a Tuesday, which is Lime Day. Limes freely available, I pocket one, and in the loo sink two more Gordon's miniatures for Dutch courage. I'm going to need it for the morning's workshops to come. These people are animals. 6 to 8 a.m. Animal Studies Workshop. Having studied an animal in depth, spending a day at the zoo, students pick a beast and spend the entire hour acting as the said beast. The teacher refused to take questions at the end, especially when asked how it might be applied and whether they'd ever use it. Several students chose sloths just so they could sleep for an hour. I sink a miniature. 8 to 10 a.m. A memory recall workshop. Students are encouraged to share horrific stories about their lives in front of everyone else in the hope they may one day be able to use it to muster some tears as the princess in the pantomime. If a student has had a genuinely happy upbringing, they are encouraged to fabricate one and repeat it over and over until they believe it themselves and are a quivering wreck on the floor. Teachers insist this will be useful and will thank them in time before throwing a small bottle on the floor which explodes with a bang and large gust of smoke allowing the teacher to disappear. One student at the end comes up to me, clawing at my wimple, desperately asking me questions. I tell her to say her three Hail Marys, pray the Lord Jesus does not tarry, and to be assured many nuns have five o'clock shadow by 10 a.m. I'm shaken by the interaction, which was not unlike how a zombie grabs a normal person in those films where zombies grab normal people. I sink into an alcove en route to the next workshop, sinking two more limes with gin. Isn't gin lovely? I must drink it more. 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. A screaming workshop. Students screamed for two hours into each other's faces. I stood in the corner and had half a miniature every 20 minutes. The tired, gaunt and haunted scream teacher joined me with her own miniatures and told me her story, which I shall remember for the rest of my days. The Horror. Jesus H. Christ. The Horror. Looking forward to lunch. 12 to 1 p.m. Lunch. Students are given their medication for the day and the other portion of the fruit of the day. After this, they may take yard time as long as they agree to continually walk and follow the commands of the on-duty teacher. If she claps, they must jump. If she claps twice, they must touch the ground. If she whistles, they must say hello and nod to the nearest person. And if she shouts worms, they must drop to the floor, wriggle and writhe around with their arms tight to their bodies, all the time groaning loudly, and they must do this for 20 seconds. Think I might have a migraine coming on, or perhaps some form of food poisoning. Can't think why else I'd feel lightheaded, slur my words, and want to dance all the time. 1 to 3 p.m. Dancey classy. Lovely students, all friends of mine. Get ready for a ballet class, but I suggest instead a good dance I learnt during my time in India in the Raj, and it goes down an absolute smash. Suggest we try it again later over some wine, to which the teacher shouts worms and all drop to the floor. I slip out to go to the Lulu, dancing all the way. I love dancing. I must do dancing more. 3 to 6 p.m. I take a wrong turn, completely by accident, get lost and find myself in a pub across the road. Oops. Shh. After a customary Guinness or four, one must help local business, the receptionist sees me and fetches me back. I assure her I was serious about the inspection, I wasn't drunk, and that she must under no circumstances call the government and to please return me to the class, and that she has lovely hair, like a young Cher. I tell her that if she wanted to, she could probably cover her tits with it if she ever had her top blown off by a gusty wind. 
6 to 8 p.m. Dinner it is. Yes, love it. Conversation is stilted. What language is this they are speaking? Me no understand. I like gin. Ask students over dessert if they have any of the sweet ganja and they laugh. I'm a hit. Must tell Michael Billington. Write a text to him saying, Proved you wrong. Only took 40 years, you fat bastard. You're ruined. Look up and Rudence gone gone. Where am I? 9 to 10 p.m. Faculty meeting with a head. No remember any of it, but being sent to observe final part of the day and then must leave the premises. Must leave the premises, the man said. Billington texts back, doesn't he? Holworth, go to bed. I laugh and falls over and it hurt him my elbow. Ouch. Nasty floor. Bad floor. Bad, bad, bad. Kind nun helps me up and I ask her, who laid this bloody floor? Her eyes glow red and I scared. Run to the dorm. 11.13pm, I think it's dark and monster time. Bread time. Budents expect their spunk while the waitress moches. She's a horrid little woman with no teeth and a stinky bum bum. Lights put out, but I try to get the party farted with a lovely round of yo-yo-yo-yo-mum gently up her spleen. Wimple ripped off in seconds by Jeanette Cranky looky-likey, so punched the witchy face with the stinky bum-bum on the nosey. Man handled out by naughty boy with lovely thighs. He's cheeky. A cheeky-cheeky boy. Taxi home for Holworth. Kebabs are nice. And it ends there with the line of the pen scrawled across the page down to what looks like a condiment stain. I'm not proud of how that ends, but I think my central point about drama schools being weird and worthless stands. And you'll be glad to know that I called the school the next day to apologise and to say I was embarrassed to say the least. I also called the emergency service to apologise after calling them out at 4am and confessing to the murder of a one-sister Bratfurst. In fact... I had simply spilt tomato ketchup from my kebab on the fancy dress costume laid out on the carpet. I must have derobed as soon as I got in. The mind boggles. The only time I've been more embarrassed was when Peggy Ashcroft awkwardly took me aside to tell me I'd spent the entirety of my five years at the National Theatre calling Lord Olivier Barry rather than Larry. I always wondered why he hated me so much. Good grief. What a business. In 1992, Hugh Bonneville, the former contortionist-turned-acclaimed actor, challenged me to a duel over my position on drama schools. It seems his particular annoyance was not with my complaining, but my reluctance to suggest alternative routes for the young and the budding. Hugh, who has carried a gun since Christmas 1978, is not usually one to get into a bust-up with over such things, but I accepted his challenge because I know he always lists to the right on account of his glass eye. And so, after I dodged his bullet with a duck and a dive, I got him in the knee, taking him down, where I then ran quickly to bring him to heel, pistol-whipping him and sitting on his chest. As we panted into each other's faces like two big Great Danes, I told him very frankly that I have and always will advocate for students' training through the repertory theatre as an alternative. Or better yet, better yet, sleeping their way to the top. He apologised, I accepted, and I took him for a mint Bailey's. And that's the point, really. There are alternatives. Sure, if you want to spend all your parents' hard-earned money, or worse yet, borrow the taxes of shop workers and drainage cleaners who work 60 hours a week in order to buy a leotard, dance the pachanga, and find you, then by all means, go to drama school. But if you're a good person, with talent, then seriously, don't 
bother your asshole. And so to correspondence. This week, Gregorio Fonzi, 17, from Swansea, has written in with a very curious question indeed. <laughs> Hello, Gregorio. He writes, Dear Holworth, I'm a six-former, soon to be a former six-former, as I prepare to leave at the end of this school year. I love acting and I'm considering drama school and the industry as a whole, but one thing troubles me. I have been told by several agents, a casting director and my own mother, that I don't have a very attractive name, and that luckily my choice of industry is one that will allow me to change it. So my question is this. Do you think my name is as strange and macabre as my parents suggest? Is a stage name necessary? And what is the recipe for a good stage name? My thanks and kindest regards, Gregorio. Oh, Gregorio, 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 oh, Mr. Fonzie, from Sonze. What can I say? Well, firstly, we do ask that patrons of the podcast submit only one question, and your flagrant disregard of that condition with your three questions is tantamount to impertinence. And normally, I would rip up your letter to shreds, flush it down the toilet after relieving myself on it. But since I've dropped a couple of uppers this morning, which I'm feeling the benefit of now, I'll let it slide. So to your questions. First, let's deal with your name. I'm inclined to agree with your parents that it is weird and not just a little bit frightening. Oh, it tickles my intrigue and impresses itself on one's mind. Don't get me wrong! But in the same way, perhaps one remembers a serial killer's name or a sexually disgraced politician's. So unless you're happy to resign yourself to a life alone with no friends but the people down the public house who are suspicious you might be on one of those government registers, I'd get down to the deed poll officers pronto. But that's your actual name, of course. Stage names are a different business altogether. Your second question, then, I'd have to say... No, no, I, I don't think a stage name is always necessary. But as you get older, you do realise that in life it can be very useful to have more than one name. Especially if, say, you were engaging in criminal activity, like, um, oh, I don't know, embezzling, stealing somebody's identity, or trying to get your mother to sign over a power of attorney to an impressive lawyer who looks a bit like you, except with glasses and a moustache. For the business, though, I think it very much depends on how recognisable your name is in the first place. I mean, they do say it can help to match a, a first name that has two syllables with a, a second name that has one. So, um, like, uh, say, uh, Maggie Smith or Ian Glenn. Um, and one must admit, you know, Peter Hall, for instance. Um, uh, yeah, one must take on board some Trevor Nunn, even, thinking about it, you know, uh, Judy Dench, of course. Um, because the, the names themselves, on their own, they, they don't really have Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry. Uh, they have no resonance without Zoe Ball. How could I forget Zoe Ball? How could you? Well, I mustn't forget Zoe Ball. Uh, names don't have more meaning because of the way they sound. Um, but there is a music, Mama Cass, Donald Trump, Reggie Yates, for goodness sakes, um, to the names themselves. If you can, as I say, candy floss. Uh, if you can find a way to almost chuck a can, brandy snap. Uh, if you can fabricate uh, the sound of an indie wix um, for a Dumbledore, uh, just 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 through its its if you can through its syllab syllabic form, uh, then more the better. Diana Ross, 
that's all of them. Then again, you may want to enter into what seems to be the new vogue, which is to combine an animal with a method of cooking it. Um, one thinks of, you know, Bear Grylls, um, uh, what's the name of that, um, oh, uh, that musician, oh, Egg Boil, and, uh, of course, there's Horse Burger. Um, three not unsuccessful people, it has to be said, though I think Horse Burger's programmes are overrated, but that's just me. Whatever you choose, Gregoria. Make it count. I do hope that helps. Gregorio Fonzi, 17 from Swansea. If indeed that is your name by the time this goes out, God willing it isn't. To you I say, good day. Well, that's all we have time for today. Join me next time when we'll be talking about the theatre mob. Or in other words, musicals, opera and ballet. As always, I'll be asking the all-important questions like Why do people like musicals when they're so obviously nonsense? If ballet isn't poofy, then why do the men wear leotards? And is it polite to ask an opera singer to pay more of the bill because, in all fairness, they had three more courses than you? You've been listening to Talking Theatre, the only podcast on Earth about the theatre. And so, to you I say, good day. <laughs>